When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life's defining moments don't always feel that great when they are happening. In the moment, they can feel challenging, uncomfortable, difficult, impossible even. But with hindsight, they can take on a different shape. Each week, I ask my guests to share their biggest life learnings to date as we explore those difficult, swampy, infuriating times and how they shaped them, all from a comfortable distance that's afforded them the time to take the positive out of what might have seemed nothing but negative at the time. Because whether it's risks, excuses, obstacles, opportunities, both missed and taken, successes, regrets, curveballs, weaknesses, strengths, and perhaps the hardest lesson of all, being wrong, they are the reason they are the person they are today. The person sitting in front of me on this episode of The Emma Gunn Show. Eddie Sternberg is a London-born writer, director and producer who is arguably one of the most exciting new names in film. I say new because Eddie's debut film, I Used to Be Famous, starring Ed Skrine, Eleanor Matsura and Leo Long, which is adapted from his short film of the same name, was released by Netflix just last year in September 2022 and promptly became one of the streaming platform's most watched films in over 60 countries, taking top 10 positions of two in the UK, eight in America and four globally. I Used To Be Famous explores the friendship between fallen pop idol Vinnie D and autistic teen Stevie who bond over music and it has won worldwide praise not just for its storytelling and performances but for its representation of neurodivergence in film. Screen Daily announced Eddie as Screen International Star of Tomorrow 2022 in their filmmaker category, an accolade previously awarded in 2014 to Phoebe Waller-Bridge and in 2009 to Richard Ayoade. The film's lead, Leo Long, was nominated for a British Independent Film Award for Best Breakthrough Performance, a moment Eddie describes as genuinely one of the greatest moments of my life. I Used to Be Famous has an 80% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and Digital Spy included it in its annual roundup of the best movies of 2022. Friend of the show and respected film critic James King heaped huge praise on I Used to Be Famous, describing it as a film with a big heart. And as if that wasn't enough, Mark Kermode, arguably the authority on film, invited Eddie to speak at the British Film Institute late last year at his monthly film event where he interviews the best of the best in film and cinema. Eddie appeared alongside the actresses Kate Hudson and Catherine Hahn and Star Wars Knives Out and Glass Onion director Ryan Johnson to talk about his experience making I Used to Be Famous. It's an incredible story, but the success we're seeing now is a result of a journey that has had its fair share of highs and lows. I am sure, Eddie, there are times you felt defeated, perhaps wondered whether you should have started in the first place, and worried whether any of this, the success you're enjoying now, was ever going to happen. So welcome to the podcast, Eddie Sternberg. I can't wait to hear this story. Oh, thank you very much. That doesn't feel like that is me, but that is all true stuff that you said. (laughs) I did. I saw that you said something like you're still coming to terms with the fact that it's actually happened. Yes. Well, I'm still coming to terms with the fact that I'm I'm a functioning adult every day, getting dressed and having being a dad of two, let alone all the stuff you just mentioned. So, (laughs) yes, there's a lot of bewildered kind of looks every day. Well, where I would like to start is with risk. Because I think taking risks is 
such a huge thing. And it's the thing that I think we can talk ourselves off the ledge of doing, but risk really does. It's the sort of starting point for this journey because you did, you took a leap, didn't you, by going freelance and mm. starting what you hoped would end up here with no idea of how that was going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I sort of, I'd started uh, working at a production company in-house, which I sort of put off for quite a while. Um, I had my own little mini production company, a kind of two-man band called Superplex Pictures. And um, the the filmmaker that I that I ran that company with, Adam Baruch, um, and I both didn't really want to run businesses. We wanted to make films. And I think fundamentally, every business decision <laughs> was, uh, it was quite clear that that's, that's what we wanted to do. Is we probably didn't make the right decision for, for the business, but made it for our film careers, if that makes sense. Right. So I'd kind of put off um, what I knew was was needed, which was basically going in-house and getting knowing exactly what was coming in every year and, you know, just settling down and settling, getting my roots down. And my long-suffering wife sort of was very supportive. But as soon as I said, I think I might need to get a real job, she looked at me as if she's been thinking the same thing for a while. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, so I, I went in-house and that sort of gave me the ability to exercise the directing muscle working with really good clients but my time was very very limited to uh, dedicate anything towards my script that I was co-writing um, and any other ideas that I was trying to sort of you know cultivate but when I, it got to a point where that time was just constantly being taken up with the day job because the day job wasn't a nine to five it was quite you know an intense 14 to 18 hour kind of day regularly you know, wow. pre-production, production, post-production. Post and it, it was, as I say, it was great to exercise that directing muscle, but it sort of, by taking away all my creative time away from that, it, it reached a point where I needed to take that leap. Do you, did you feel like the dream was slipping away? Like in trying to make a decision to provide and to have some stability, you could feel the dream getting further and further away in the distance? Yeah, I think so. Um, it was always... It was always there and I always kept the faith. But I mean, I would I would get up at sort of like 5.30, get to work for 6, 6, 6.30 um, as soon as the Starbucks would open next door, the office. <laughs> and I, I would create more hours in the day to sort of work on the script. Mm. And then I'd get home a lot of the time, you know, eight or nine o'clock and then I would just work. And it, it's it's not conducive to, you know, having creative ideas um, or coming up with anything or just, you know, when, when you're just doing it just because you're in front of a screen, you need to have that, you need to have the the air, you know, I'm no doctor or scientist, <laughs> but you need to have the air going on up there, moving around, the blood moving around. And I think if you're spending too much of your time dedicating it to the day job, it's quite hard to kind of do both, but you have to at times, you know. So the risk was going freelance, not pursuing the actual dream. Because I think a lot of people would think the idea of making a film and putting any time and effort into that would be risk the riskier thing. Mm. But actually, that's not your perspective. Well, it kind of is in that, you know, I went freelance to try and make it. The, the reason why it was so risky to go freelance for me at that time in my life was because my wife and I were starting to plan for a baby. And um, ironically, I quit the job on the Wednesday and then we found out we were pregnant like three days after. So although it was like the plan and it was like, yeah, I'm going to go freelance, try for a baby. The reality three days later was like, did I make a massive, massive <laughs> mistake? Because this is actually happening now. Um, so, yeah, I, I the, the, the risk for me was basically now that we were going to have a baby 
had a mortgage to just go totally freelance, not knowing what's going to come in, that our, our film was still quite far away. Like we, we'd spent years working on the script. This is me and my co-writer, Zach Klein, and my producers, uh, Chris Pensakowski and Colleen McCarthy. And we spent years and years sort of working on the script, getting it better, um, adding little bits of value to the to the project. So we we you know at one point we had uh, this uh, this great script editor called uh, Ed Clark who was brilliant, and then that made the script a lot better and sort of ready for the industry. Uh, and then we added uh, an exec. We added Damien Jones and Paul Grindy who'd made some amazing stuff. Damien Jones produced The Iron Lady with Meryl Streep. So we were sort of ticking it along and adding bits of value to the the package that we were sort of selling to the industry essentially. Mm. So, but but at the same time, there, there was no guarantee that it would ever happen. You know, there's so many things that sort of sort of stay in development hell for years and years, and we were already in development purgatory for uh, for you know five years at that point. So for me, it was sort of a leap of faith that it's like I'm going to spend not have any income. I'm going to dedicate all my time to work on the script to try and get this film made and try to cultivate you know freelance contacts and all that kind of stuff. And then the pandemic hits. And then the pandemic hit, yeah. So that was um, incredibly hard for for everyone. Um, but I think a lot of people that fell through the cracks, like me, it was quite difficult as well because obviously we had a newborn baby. Our, our baby was born the month before lockdown. Uh, so it was, yeah, lockdown was March 2020. February 2020, yeah. And baby was born 17th of February. Um, and so I found myself in a position where I'd spent seven months at that point sort of cultivating um, all my freelance contacts. And I had a lot of work lined up and it was like, right, I'm going to take a month paternity. You know, this is the, I got the ability to do that, mm. you know, being freelance and I'm going to take advantage of that. As long as I can justify that with all the work that I've kind of lined up, which I did. Pandemic hit, all of that work fell through. And then the reality that for the first time where I actually kind of did lose faith that the film would happen. I always had that faith apart mm. from that one moment. I think it was like in reality that was probably like the the worst moment in my entire life because I felt I felt I I needed to I had a wife on mat leave I had a child that I had to provide provide for and I couldn't provide for them because mm. all the work fell through what I would do there there was no uh, industry for what I did really at that point and then the film which was just you know the big kind of dream was just like how is this ever going to happen if I can't even feed my kid kind of thing so then what I did is I kind of like doubled down into try to do what I could do, which is basically just like write a new script. That was essentially what I did. That was quite difficult with not much sleep and, you know, feeling incredibly down. Yeah. So that's kind of what happened there. Were people around you saying, for crying out loud, Eddie, just cut your losses? Because you're talking about five years at this point mm. of, of input into something that had had reached a point where the world had changed as much as anything else. And it's like, is this really a viable, realistic dream for you now? Mm. Was it just, was it in your head as much as, or was it other people as well? My family have always been really supportive. I think it's because they've known that I always kind of didn't excel in much at school, apart from a very, <laughs> apart from the creative stuff, you know, so photography or, you know, and then I, the dream, I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was five, I think. Why? I went to go see Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
my dad took me to see Spartacus, which is quite, to, Kubrick at five is quite intense. And it had a weird effect on me, basically. Um, I, I say five, because that's kind of the romantic thing to say. I, I don't really know exactly, but I, I think it was when I first saw my first film. And I just, I've always been blown away by it. I've always been that kind of the weirdo that just would sort of always make the choice not to go out and party with his friends when he's younger and just stay in and watch a film. I would do that a lot. Yeah, I don't have any friends. No, I'm kidding, I do. Um, <laughs> I know what you mean though, yeah. because I have had some of my most intense experiences via films. That's right. why I love them so much. Mm. Because they are little portals to emotions that are easier to manage <laughs> in a cinema or your living room yes. than in real life Absolutely. with other people. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's true. But then why is your favorite film, you know, Jurassic Park? No, I'm kidding. Um, there's, we can't relate to Jurassic Park. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, it's not Jurassic Park. It's not Jurassic Park. Your favorite film um, <laughs> from memory, it's got to be an Arnie film, surely. Yes. Yeah, okay. It's in the top three, Terminator okay. 2, Judgment Day. Perfect. Um, <laughs> moving on. So, yeah, where were we? You're talking about very serious stuff. Um, yeah, so I, I've I've always wanted to, to be a director, specifically to direct. Mm. And then I started writing as a kind of means to an end. And then I found myself really enjoying that process. Nowadays, it's, they're two very, very different things, writing and directing, which we can come on to. But um, mm. yeah. I wouldn't, like now, if you said to me, what does a director do? Obviously, you know, and you've done it. Mm. But I would be like, well, mm, I would imagine that a director does a lot of things and actually probably each director directs in a unique way like there's no there's no dummy's guide to directing is there i mean there's loads of books about it which <laughs> i've pretended to have read but um i i always find um uh for me just the experience is how you learn everything mm -hmm. uh, and you know i remember i was I, I went to university i studied uh film and media studies it was very much an excuse for me to just watch films and get a degree watching films. Um, no, <laughs> yeah, it was it was the dream. I did have a chance to kind of like dive into you know uh, a lot of sort of the, the theoretical and philosophical side of film. You know, you'd have like a, a term on horror, and then you'd have one on high concept films of the '90s. Where I, I'll be honest, I did just watch Top Gun in a lecture and be like, "This is amazing." Um, <laughs> but there wasn't that much practical stuff for that course. It was much more theoretical. Mm. I then started out as a runner at um, a production company called Partizan. They do a lot of uh, the big music videos and, and commercials, um, and I think some films now as well. And some of the people that, that are represented by Partizan, like Michelle Gondry and um, Daniel Wolf, like some amazing filmmakers, uh, I learned a lot more on set of a music video in like three days as a runner than I did, you know, at university, you know, doing a film studies degree. So when people people ask me a lot of the time, you know, like film school, is it for them? Uh, or, you know, a film media degree kind of thing. For me, it's it's all about what is it you specifically want to do. If you mm. want to direct, which is what I wanted to do, you need as much practical experience as possible. And you need to get onto set and you need to start doing your own stuff, you know. That's really interesting. So talk to me about that because I'm quite interested about this because we are, at the moment, there's a definite culture of everyone thinking that they can kind of do it just by, I'm born to do it. You know, that kind of entitlement piece mm. that's very loud at the moment about particular age groups. And I know that when I was starting in journalism, it was about sitting in the corner, watching, doing the grunt work, making making sure you made not just tea, but good tea. Yeah. Though I do apologize to my former deputy editor of the Seven Oaks Chronicle because I used to make him terrible tea. But anyway. How do you make bad tea? I'm sorry. Like, it, Well, he didn't like it and he's been vocal about it for 20 years. I don't understand people that have, yeah, anyway. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, should, sure, I'm sure it was great. 
I, I believe it to be good too, but um, it was about sort of sitting and waiting your turn and watching what other people were doing, mm. which may be a skill that, or the missing piece from what this whole entitlement conversation is about. So when you went on those sets and you said you learned more in three days on a music video, mm. was it because you just watched and just let your eyes take in and compute every single thing that was happening? Yeah, but it's, it's more... It's watching it, but it's also experiencing it, you know, and being in, especially if you're a runner as well, and you're kind of, you're the first on on set and, and the last to leave. Mm-hmm. And it is just, yeah, experiencing it, watching it, taking it all in, seeing what everyone does. Because a lot of people don't realize that actually they might want to be in a different department than what they think. You know, they might get onto set and just be amazed by what, you know, the gaffer's doing, you know, with, with, with the lighting, because that's a real art, actually, you know, mm-hmm. what, the, what the cinematographer's doing. And a lot of it is a rude awakening when you get onto set because it's it's quite an extreme uh, experience. I think a- any set it's always problem solving essentially with creative solutions. If you're a director specifically, I think it is a- about just diving in and experiencing, but then also doing stuff yourself. So just like making stuff. Mm. And I, filmmakers always say like just go out and make something every weekend, and and then you'll get better. And it's like. That, that is true, but it's a lot more nuanced than that. I think I always quote Tarantino, which makes me, uh, which is really embarrassing because my friends take the mech out of me. It's like, <laughs> you've made one film and now you're quoting Tarantino, uh, my friend. The thing that I found really inspiring is when he was just like, go and make Reservoir Dogs, right? Which everyone in the audience when he said it laughed, but he's just like, I'm not even being a smart ass. Like that film was dynamite. And if you if you aspire and make something that is dynamite and you throw it in someone's lap, it's it's going to explode in their face and they can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about going out and getting something made. It's about going out, finding something that you're passionate to make and making that and then getting better and better and better and just like demanding attention, you know. So that means that is that what kept you motivated through was it six and a half years, just over six years to get to go from idea to completion? Yeah, I think for me, it was yeah, it was that belief that I could I had this like nervous, creative energy, I think, if that's a way of putting it, just this nervous energy, this anxiety where it's like, this is so good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I believe this thing could be amazing. Mm. Um, I just want to be able to prove that to people you know I had I had it bubbling away and then the more you work on it it's like yes yes yeah you know what I mean a lot of that is you know there's projects that that you think could be that good but you have a realization if you don't have that burning desire to kind of make it that actually mm. maybe that's not the right one at the moment maybe it needs a rethink and I think that that nervous energy is really really key just to keep the faith because everything in the world especially trying to make a first film you know you're, you're asking people to fund you know you can get a film made for, for much cheaper now, but like in terms of, you know, going the industry route, you know, you apply for public funding, I don't know, a film that's just under a million or something is is kind of what you what we aspired to for I used to be famous for a while. And then you're asking people to fund that and you haven't really got a track record of doing it. You've got, you know, in my case, I had a couple of short films that did like relatively well at festivals. Um, I got signed by an agent, but it's really, really difficult to kind of mm-hmm. get people to back you, you know. So you have to have that passion when it might not be coming from the outside world. Yeah, I think as the writer-director, uh, so I wrote and directed The Shore, and then I brought my co-writer, Zach Klein, on board. Because as I said, like my, my directing was always the number one for me. Mm-hmm. And, and Zach was a very talented writer that I felt I didn't feel ready to kind of write something on my own. And I, we had a really, he had a really good ideas and we collaborated really well. 
but I think as the kind of I guess showrunner for for the piece, you know, you more than anyone need to have that passion and desire and and faith that it's going to be brilliant because everyone else has to buy into that, you know, and then it kind of feeds into your team, uh, and that kind of in in the in the years trying to make it, you know, we had a team of uh, my co-writer, my two producers. Um, and that was the core. And, and and then we had our casting director, Isabella Rodolphin. And all these people were kind of on their way up. I kind of caught everyone at a good time and everyone kind of believed in the project. But if I ever let that faith sort of die down, then it's it's going to be the same for them. Do you know what I mean? You you need to be the, the sort of the steady port that they're all looking for, for the reassurance that that's quite a responsibility, actually. Mm, yeah. I, I mean... That moment where I did lose the faith for the for for like half a second uh, is a bit more than that in, in <laughs> lockdown. Um, we, w- my producer Collie and Isabella, we had a conversation actually, and it was, should we pursue this still? You know, considering what's happening in the world and and just where we were at in the journey of trying to get it made, because you have certain avenues you can go down. Mm. You know, in terms of financing and all that kind of stuff. In fact, sorry, that's what I was meaning to say before is that you're you're trying to convince people to put money into your project so unless you have like total passion and like you're you're almost um fanatical you know about about this idea it's never going to happen you know um and then you know once you made a few successful films and you can just be like yeah whatever i'll just make a film because you know uh fund me you know i look forward to arrogant eddie in the, yes, in the future yeah i'll come back and i'll just be you know wearing a beret and uh, <laughs> yeah anyway so i'm always interested in the idea of self sabotage which brings us on to the excuse the idea that um we can put these obstacles in our way that don't actually fundamentally exist but they are very very real to us so during whether it's the process of making the film or just in life, what is the excuse that you make that you know is BS, but you uh, you still continue to make it? Uh, it's time. It's making excuses of saying I don't have enough time when actually I prove to myself that you do have enough time or you can make extra time if you need to get something done. Mm. You know, because I think back back when I when I was you know working this um, this day job and creating more hours in the day, I think my mentality was like, no one owes you anything, you know? Uh, And I actually got that when we went on the short film circuit and we made the short film. You're you're playing your film, no one knows who you are. So you need that audience that are sat there, most of them are sat there because they've made their own short film. So, uh, so, you know, and and some other people, you know, are, are there because they want to watch short films. But no one owes you anything. So you need to grab their attention and you need to make them, you know, want to give you the time of day. So that mentality kind of fed into, you know, just constantly wanting to improve it, constantly doing all that kind of stuff. Um, But now, like, you know, as a dad of two kids and having not as much sleep, you know, it's very easy to kind of just be like, I... These settings aren't perfect for my creativity. Um, (laughs) But it's never perfect. Do you know what I mean? I try to say that to my, you know, six month old who's like dribbling, like, you know, what do I expect her to say back to me? It's like, dad, just, I'm sorry. I'll try and sleep some more. Um, Yeah. So I think if you need, if you want to get something done enough, time isn't really going to be an issue, if that makes sense. No matter how hard it is, you just need to make it work. I'm kind of contradicting myself from what I said earlier, because I was talking about, you know, 
things not being ideal for like a for um things not being uh, conducive to mm-hmm. creativity and and that is true but you need to if you want something enough you kind of need to overcome that yeah in whichever way you, possible if that makes sense and there's a guest i had on the show a couple of years ago pre-pandemic jeff thompson incredible guy he wrote his first book on a spiral bound notebook in the gents on his lunch break <laughs> every lunchtime he would go and he would just write in the spiral bound book and that became his book which then got turned into a film amazing so yeah. i think you're absolutely right it's just um it's joining the dot between that commitment to doing that and having that passion and that mm. nervous energy that you talk about that like this has to get made this has to this has to come out of me yeah i have to birth this into the world and absolutely. it's kind of marrying it with the right things because sometimes we can get thrown off course a little bit Mm. i'm also really interested by what you said about nobody owes you anything because i think that's a really sage piece of advice and sometimes is the kind of thing that we can get tripped up on that did you think previously people owed you something to come to that realization no, I, I don't think it was it was sort of actively like I'm owed anything. Mm. I think it was just the realization that you've kind of got to work harder to be noticed. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It was kind of like you can't just make a film and expect attention. I guess in the sense, yeah, expect that in that way it would be they owe me their attention because they're watching my film. But mm. even in that environment, like they don't, especially nowadays, you know, people switch off in the first 10 seconds thanks to you know tiktok and youtube and stuff um so, tiktok's destroying my brain by yeah. another but, conversation. But, but but you do need to grab people from the off you know mm-hmm. and then you know obviously once you've got a more of a track record and you have your your audience then people might have a bit more patience you know where you can kind of have the inciting incident take place a little bit later in your film or whatever mm-hmm. but really you know you need to grab their attention in terms of grabbing people's attention and and having that nervous energy that's not ju- in film anyway or writing a film it's not just getting the thing written it's actually sort of getting it out there mm-hmm. and like hustling you know we spoke about this in the past the you hustle. know it's absolutely essential because the reason this got made was because my core team were constantly moving things forward so you know i was writing with zach and improving it and, and my producer was sort of having their conversations and then i was having conversations and i found myself in certain situations where like it became quite natural to speak about it and even if it wasn't that natural you kind of make it natural to speak about (laughs) it um and that's actually how how famous got made but but with the accumulation of all of that stuff Mm. but but interestingly i actually went to an event a screen international event because my casting director was a a screen star of tomorrow um isabella adolphin and she offered me uh, to be her plus one um, I'm very thankful for that. So when I went to that event and, you know, just by being there and being into the industry of all these people that are plugged in, mm. it, that alone can, anything can come from that. Um, and it, yeah, just from that event, I met someone who ended up totally changing my life and was the person that, uh, that said yes to this film, essentially. Wow. Yeah. So Net- networking is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's everything. You know, there's the networking. When you know, when I went freelance, one of the biggest things that I I found that was really helpful was just working from Soho and just like you know, I was working. Sometimes I go to the Pitch House Central, uh, you know, and you'd see like 
people walking in there. Um, I don't know if I should name people, but you know, no, just... they were act- they would often be because you and I used to both go to the pictures, right? And you'd see people with scripts, actors, uh, yeah. people that you knew were in film, and you're yeah. like, oh, they're just chilling out here because it's yeah. a film place. It was exciting. It was exciting, and also a bit kind of I had that that nervous energy came back in because I was like, do I have a copy of my script? No, <laughs> I never did that. I never did that, but I always fantasize about doing that. Um, yeah, and just being in those environments, you know, and and just using your your energy to to keep improving the the make the product that you're trying to sell as as easy to buy as possible. Mm. Um, I got through that analogy just about, um, and and being in those environments and conversations that you have, you know, I th- I think it's that that energy is everything really. And also the thing about because that's really stuck with me the thing about no one know, owes you anything, but also I think it's that realization that your perspective is unique Mm. so you can't expect people to see your project through your eyes Mm. which is the challenge because it's like they they don't they might not care how do i make somebody who has the polar opposite view on this to me care absolutely well that that i think is the most important job of the director actually is to sell your vision to everyone else who's working on the film uh well first and foremost the people that are going to pay for it um (laughs) And th- and then the people that are going to mm. work on it, and that goes from you know, the uh, cinematographer all the way to the runners. Like every single person needs to buy in. You have your heads of departments, the the people that you kind of, you know, your uh, um, stylist, co- costume stylist, hair and makeup. Um, you've got your production designers, art directors. All these people uh, are so talented, and they're they're ready f- to make your vision happen. So you have to get them to buy in. You have to get them to be passionate about it because they're going to be a lot better doing that than you will ever be. Mm. But as long as you can just kind of guide it into the same kind of direction, um, that's how you create the magic. And same with the actors as well. You know, I always like to work with my actors. I like them to have as much of themselves in the role as possible. I like, I mean, <laughs> other writers that I might work with now might, uh, not want to work with me when I say this, but I I do like um, improvisation. And if there's a line that in workshopping that doesn't feel as natural from the actor's mouth, I'd like them to say what would be more natural to mm-hmm. make the same point. And I'll almost always go with that way, you know, because for me, authenticity in 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 films and in your characters is what gives it value and what makes it great. I think. I thought. In the film, there is not a performance that you you come away thinking every single performance is absolutely stellar, oh, by the thank way. Thank you. Thank you like, very much. Genuinely. I will take all the credit for that. <laughs> um, no, thank you very much. That No, I, I, I kind of feel like, I mean, I talk about it with my, my DOP mates, you know, my cinematographer uh, friends, where the, the visuals are incredibly important. And for certain films, they kind of are the most important things for certain types of films. But the sort of films that I make is very much character and story driven. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that the cinematography isn't like incredibly important because I very much want to, I work with Angus Hudson on this. Um, uh, amazing cinematographer who, who'd come off of a film with Sophia Loren. Um, yeah, if you, which is part, that was part of the, um, <laughs> that was part of the, what was so amazing about doing my first film in this way and being so lucky to work with Netflix is that mm-hmm. I had access to incredible cast and crew. Um, Somehow, I have no idea how I went from that moment of the pandemic to just like on set with like this cinematographer that just works. That's what's so incredible because Mm. it's a dream story. That's Mm. what I find so incredible about this whole journey that you've been on is that 
I've heard so many people tell me their ideas over the friends, not not that anyone pitches to me, but I just you hear Can people. Can you find my next film? <laughs> yeah, so. I would if I could. I would. Yeah, um, and yet to see, not only to see you do it, and there's been a big gap between like the first time we ever met and talked about it, mm. and it actually happening. But yeah, just just seeing you make it real. And when I first when I sat down and watched the film. <laughs> As soon as it started, I started to clench because I was like, oh, that shot's so expensive. <laughs> I'm glad that's the reason why you're clenching. It's not because you thought it was a terrible film. No, <laughs> as soon as it started, I was like, oh, oh, this is, this is, and it sounds it's like patronizing. This is a real This is a proper film. film, yeah. He wasn't lying all that time. Yeah. 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 Um, no, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. It is, it is, it was a dream scenario to go from the hard, the hardest moment in my life to then, you know, I mean, it was, I think it was, February 21, where my agent called me and said that Netflix wanted not just that film, but the the new film that I wrote during lockdown. It was that day. Um, yeah, it was quite mad, actually. My dad uh, <laughs> turned up to just sort of drop some supplies over, which was very kind of him. And I was on the phone to my agent at the time uh, outside of my house. And he was like, OK, Eddie's on a you know business call, um, <laughs> looking, you know, bye bye, shelter, um, walking back and forth. And um, I just had, the, I remember the moment and she, my jaw just dropped and my dad was like, oh God, who died? <laughs> you know, um, And then got off the phone and told him, well, I said, hold on one second because my wife's going to kill me if I don't tell her this first. Oh. Went back in, told Ashley. And then, yeah, it was, a, I told my dad, it was, yeah, it was pretty mad. No mm. one died. I have been given life. <laughs> yeah. My director um, yeah. career, my directing career has been given life. Yeah. Incredible. Okay. I know we've talked about some of the things that kind of got in your way, but let's talk about the biggest obstacle that you had to mm. overcome in order to get to this place where we are today. I know it does tie into going freelance and making those big changes. Yeah. I, th I think, I think the biggest obstacle. So yeah, so there, there's the kind of permanent obstacle of trying to, you know, achieve that dream uh from that kubrick gave me at five years old um uh which is you know to get your film made and funded that that's the the, the permanent thing that's there and to find the to keep up that passion and energy you know um i i say it as if it's like it's just there but no you need to have the right project you need to be um you know uh in the right frame of mind to to create that you know but then in terms of the specific biggest obstacle it was very much that moment in in uh february march um my mental health took a really you know deep sort of dive kind of you know at that point again like like a lot of other people um i think not ha not th there was a lot of regret at that point because obviously i didn't have any furlough because I, <laughs> I went freelance and those seven months from being freelance to that point were really great i i spent a lot of work and time on the film um you know there was a lot of uh sort of priceless i guess um time where i told my wife that whilst i didn't have any income it, this is priceless what i'm doing today um <laughs> but um that it was very valuable you know because i had you know if we didn't have the pandemic i probably i had a lot of work lined up which was really exciting for sort of daytime you know day day job stuff mm. um and i had the chance to kind of do a lot of work on the film but I think that moment was the biggest obstacle to not have any income coming in, to be, you know, needing to provide for my 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 uh, my wife and my my newborn baby 
not being able to, and having the, I guess, um, positivity or the the kind of is it positivity the right word? There's energy. There's positivity. There's there's faith. Having the faith, I guess, is the best word to to to, to put there to create something new that's going to take us out of it. And really, like I've spent so many years with a film that I had total belief in. So to create something new, and so and that hadn't been funded yet. Mm. So it was kind of like, um, at the time, it was a bit of a pipe dream because there's no guarantee. In fact, it's likely this will never get made as well as the other film. But I just felt that's what I needed to do to get through it. Mm. Um, you know, maybe I could have focused on trying to find, I mean, I, I did try and find ways of working and having an income uh, within the realms of, you know, write, basically writing, you know, commercials and branded, branded content stuff because animation was still going on um, or like uh, stock footage films, you know, because mm -hmm. people weren't shooting. Yeah. But the scripts were still being made. So I got a little bit of stuff eventually with that, but that I, I kind of focused on that. But rather than retrain or... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Refocus my energy, which a lot of people had to do. And I think if more time went on, I, I would have done. I kind of, yeah, used that obstacle to kind of double down into the thing that it was probably really silly to do, but it ended up working out. So. It ended up working out. And I know that when it comes onto your challenge, you've already mentioned this, this is about the money. This is about convincing mm. people to invest in you and your idea. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that is the bit for any filmmaker trying to fund their first film. There's only a certain amount of ways you, you can really go about it. One is to, to go and make it yourself, which, you know, these days with the, the, the access to high quality equipment is 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 a lot better than it used to be but with that there's a lot more stuff getting made so to cut through it's very very hard to do that when you're trying to make a feature film or when you've made a feature film um you know it there are still these kind of big pillars of the industry where like you know the bfi you want to sort of get in with the bfi mm -hmm. uh they support a lot of first-time filmmakers and uh, you know creative england but it's very competitive and it's very very hard to 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 if you're lucky enough to get onto that, uh, we didn't get onto that. So, you know, that, that also added into the, you know, trying to keep with the faith because the, the, the very small amount of options that, that were, were, would be able to kind of fund your film or at least give you a bit of backing. We'd gone through those, uh, we'd gone to them and been rejected. Um, yeah. So that was really difficult to keep the faith at that point. Um, but we just had that belief. Do you know what I mean? And that's really interesting in terms of a challenge because, okay, so there's a finite number of people or mm. resources that you can go to to get funding. Yeah. And you went to all of them and every single door was closed. So that would, to a lot of people, be 
well, that's the end. You mm. all shake hands and say it was a fun ride. Have a happy life. Yeah. But it, we keep coming back to every single thing that you've had to work through yeah. comes back to this faith. Yeah. And yeah. this feeling in your heart that this has to get made. Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, that's just what kept it going. And I think there's so many times where it could have. I mean, there was a conversation where it was like, maybe this isn't the first project. And maybe we just kind of try and focus on something else that's a bit more kind of sellable. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, a lot of people in the industry, um, they want what's called sort of genre films. You know, they want a comedy or a thriller or, you know, uh, or a horror those films tend to be, you know, for first-time filmmakers, uh, a slightly easier route because it doesn't mean it, it's, it needs to be amazing, but um, it's just a, it's just easier to sell than this kind of uh, comedy drama, you know, that some people might look at as, you know, just kind of being worthy in any kind of way, you know, like which which it totally isn't that. Mm. But to try and convince people where they have only a certain amount of hours in the day, so many scripts to read. And it's like, right, I know what that is. I'm going to fund that. What's this? No, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Interesting. Okay, now let's talk about opportunity. Yes. Because there are opportunities missed and there are opportunities grabbed with both hands. And you have talked about the opportunity that you grabbed with both hands. And I can understand why. (laughs) Please tell us what that was. So I guess the, the, the biggest opportunity for me was was being given the backing by Netflix to go and make my debut feature, you know, with a totally different mentality. You know, it wasn't a kind of, I mean, everything I'd made up until that point, well, most people until they make their first big film, you know, is uh, the financial constraints, Mm. you know, and you have to come up with these creative solutions to kind of practical problems because you don't have... Uh, an unlimited amount of money and we didn't have an unlimited amount with this but um we had some amazing support you know for example that soundtrack for the film i have had most of those songs on a spotify playlist for years dreaming that we'd be able to afford them but knowing that it's like not probably not going to happen you know because you know got porter's head on there we've got um uh the doobie brothers (laughs) you've got house the rising sun you know so like uh, the fact that that could even be a reality and, you know, um, um, my, I spoke to my music supervisor, David Fish, m- most days because the soundtrack for me was was so important and the fact that it was sort of, oh, we can potentially get this uh, was huge. Um, I always kind of, um, I don't know if we've spoken about this at all in the past, but some of my favourite filmmakers are, are the types that have sort of very curated soundtracks. So like Cameron Crowe, you know, who talks about his soundtrack ideas for his films being like that thick on a mm. piece of paper, but the scripts are like that thick. Um, are you going to mention Quentin Tarantino again? Uh, <laughs> my friend uh, Quentin. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, but 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 yes. Um, and, you know, like Richard Linklater and Days and Confused. Mm. Um, so that was really important. Um, and then uh, just, as I said before, kind of having the ability to approach certain actors and certain uh, crew where, you know, I'm sure we would have made something that I'd be very proud with, with with not as much of that support. But to be able to have that support mm. uh, was was absolutely amazing. During the process, were there any times where you thought this isn't perhaps going the way I want it to? Did you ever have to course correct? given that you were having to deal with lots of things, budget, uh, actors, lots of different departments, 
Did you ever at any point, did it feel as good as you hoped it would? I mean, it, when you make a film, that happens daily. I mean, you're making hundreds and hundreds of decisions a day. And not all of those decisions, you know, the, the things will present itself in a way where, you know, yes, I got the soundtrack that I wanted, but mm -hmm. there's a street that our location manager found that was great, but then it turns out we can't use it. So we have to figure out a different way of kind of shooting the scene or there's lots of issues that do come up that, that it, I think in any film you get that from, you know, uh, something that's shot in a shoestring or something that's hundreds of millions of pounds to shoot, you know, that's part of the beauty of it, I think, is 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 being able to kind of figure out how to kind of maintain that quality and the fact that you can get everything you want despite running out of time, despite not getting the the right, you know, uh, you know, location you might want and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. But the fact that we had that backing from Netflix just made it made it easier or, you know, uh, and also my my producer, colleague McCarthy, who who this is his first film. I was blown away by the fact that he, you know, led this from the front where I felt, you know, the size of this for a first film is very, very rare. And I, I mean, will always be incredibly appreciative for that. I think we haven't lost the kind of heart that we wanted to have with it mm -hmm. by, by having the ability to make those decisions. But uh, I was, I'm very grateful to Collie because I never, I never felt, uh, so restricted that it's not going to be what I want to make, if that makes sense. That's a nice experience. Um, let's talk about successes now. Obviously, the film has been incredibly successful, but that's not what you picked. Uh, yes. Uh, no, my, my main success is, um, yeah, convincing my wife to to, to, to marry me because um, I think I'm probably quite hard to live with, especially when all I go on about all day is... Um, is uh, the film I eventually want to make that probably won't get made. <laughs> um, and obviously, yeah, having, having, uh, being lucky enough to be a father to two, two, two little girls is absolutely my greatest success. Um, and then very far after that would be, yeah, making the film. <laughs> what I liked about it when we spoke about this before is you said, I still see myself as an eight-year-old, let alone a dad of two. Yes, that is true. <laughs> I wasn't sure whether I should say that um, because my wife's probably watching this or listening to this. Uh, yeah, just sort of nodding. Yep, I also see you as an eight-year-old, <laughs> let, let alone a dad of two. Um, I yeah. have the same complex if it Do makes you? you feel any better. I still feel like a sixth former. Oh, really? I, yeah. It's, it's imposter syndrome, isn't it? Mm. And I think that's, I actually think it's a good thing, very good thing to have and to maintain um, because... I think it keeps you on your toes. You don't get complacent. You need to kind of, you know, you, I, 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 I've, I always think, you know, when I turned up to set and you'd have hundreds of people, you know, and I'm there just sort of with my flat cap, sort of at a coffee being like in my head, sort of, oh my God. <laughs> um, I, 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 there's something about that that I actually think was, but, but, but not being overawed by it, you know, um, for me, that actually uh, manifests itself into excitement. Mm. And it's the same for Collie as well. And I think being on set and being a director and also having your producer as well, I think it's so important that it's, especially nowadays, you know, where people are more aware of mental health struggles, especially in that in such an extreme environment. It's so important that that everyone feels valued, you know, from, from as I say from your heads of departments to to your runners to your sparks to your gaffers to you know everyone needs to feel that value because 
so long, you know, in the, the industry has been, you're lucky to be here and I'm going to treat you like crap, you know, and it's just not really on. Never was, but especially now it's, you know. I don't think it's reserved for film either. I think I think it was that thing which is hopefully um, disappearing now, which is the more important that you got, the bigger your title, the bigger your salary, the the more you could punch down. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you had been in that position where working your way up in the industry, you had been punched down by people above you. It actually, it takes a lot to break that cycle because you think it comes with the the growth or the mm. uh, progression. So it's really uh, cheering to hear you describe it the way that you describe it. I, I, look, I'm sure it still happens, uh, you know, in, in film. And certainly I know that it happens in other industries, but the the hope is is that you know the com there is a conversation about it now which will hopefully change things a bit mm. but i think for for me specifically and the nature of i used to be famous as a film it was so important to uh to have an atmosphere that was firstly conducive to we were working with neurodiverse talent who were amazing you know in the drum circle scenes uh and obviously leo long who who was you know our lead uh co-lead actor um, in his first role, you know, working with people uh, not only who are neurodiverse actors, but but really, really everyone. It's very important that like this is a job, and you're 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 here because obviously financially you're you're being paid because you're at your job, but you want to do this job, right? People shouldn't be on set thinking, oh, my God, I'm having a terrible time, but I'm lucky to be here because of this. And eventually um, I'll be happy. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. It, it's so important because you get the best out of people if they feel valued and if they're happy on set. And look, sometimes, if I'm honest, like I was like a giddy little kid um, and that voice in my head of, oh, my God, would come out a little bit. But I think I think that that fed into people's excitement to be there. The The downside of it which you do need to be aware of when you're basically like a, a, a kid in a candy store um, is that, you know, if you are actually running out of time and you're having too much fun, <laughs> you might not make your day, which is really bad. Right. So so there are times where you will need to just sort of switch that off and just be, you know, you, you need to be very focused, especially if you're the director, because, mm -hmm. it you know, it, it I mean, I was always focused, but but you need, there are times where, especially certain scenes and the nature of certain scenes where you need to not, let that kid in the candy store vibe go out um uh and then and make sure you make your days and make sure you get what you need especially the the serious very serious scenes um but yeah that I, I think it's important and i guess that's only a muscle that you can build and develop and strengthen by being practical by experience. the practice of doing it and experience yeah yeah um so talk to me about any regrets that you have had and how they've shaped this experience so <laughs> so a few days after quitting my freelance job and finding out my wife was pregnant that I, I think at the time I was like, I think I regret this decision, uh, quitting the job and then being in a global pandemic and not having any income at that time. I think I regretted that. <laughs> but actually looking back, um, I don't regret anything at all. You know, I think um, it, the, the wrong decisions, which I guess is, a you know, I, I kind of define regret as like mate having made wrong decisions um mm. i think that is part it's all part of the process i think hindsight you know is a wonderful thing um but even with even with hindsight having made that decision there was a reason why you make that wrong decision at the time um 
and I, I so I, I don't really like to live with any regrets really yeah I agree I had an excellent guest on last year called Daniel Pink who's written a whole he has actually has a whole directory of regrets so you can go to his website and you can fill in your regret and he's written this incredible book and he says it's all data it's all date like if you don't make mistakes you cannot move forward and grow and develop because those those exactly as you say are part of the process yeah and they are part of the picture and this idea that you can always be happy or that everything should always be wonderful is a really sort of dangerous image to put out there because mm. highs come with lows and they should because that's what that's the magical tapestry of life absolutely <laughs> but but also it, you know practically speaking if i hadn't uh, in the moment where i'd gone freelance and i was in we were in the pandemic and i was i it was uh will ferrell was like i immediately regret this decision um, <laughs> it's like actually if that hadn't have happened uh if i hadn't have quit the job i wouldn't have focused my energies on on this new thing mm-hmm. that not only got that you know in development which i'm writing now uh but got ice famous made you know mm-hmm. there, there's so many of these wrong decisions that that had to happen in order to be where where you are you know of all the people I thought you were going to quote today, Will Ferrell was not the one. <laughs> <laughs> really? Are you that shocked? Will Ferrell? Yeah, fair. Um, tell me about what you're proud of. Uh, I, I'm most proud of being a dad. I think that is, you know, that's every every day. Um, I always have this, when, when there's, a, <laughs> it might sound quite creepy. At, no, at night when I just, when the two kids are down momentarily and you just kind of completed a day as a dad, <laughs> you know, and you go, you check on them and it's just like, that I think that moment every day genuinely is like where I'm at my proudest. Um, uh, but yeah, also I'm I'm really proud of um, of what we achieved with the film. Um, you know, firstly the fact that so many people have seen it um, and, and and enjoyed it or seem to enjoy it. Um, but also um, working with Leo Long as mm. um, uh, you know a brilliant debut actor. It this isn't a film about autism. This is a film about two people that meet um and there's themes in there of you know brotherhood and friendship and missed missed um opportunities and um and wanting to uh go and come into independence and these are themes that are very universal one of the characters happens to be autistic and that is how that is to me that's real life and that's how we treated it within the film it doesn't need to be a big focus mm-hmm. um and you know what's interesting. You know, he, his um, arc was originally based on my cousin Saul Zerspiro from the Autistics. From the Autistics with an X, the uh, autistic, autistic uh, the rock band that have uh, uh, the majority of members uh, are autistic. And um, yeah, he, so so I mean, I could tell you, should I tell you a bit about Saul's? Yeah. yeah? So Saul really inspired me. Um, he's uh, a cousin of mine um, that. Uh, is autistic and has um, uh, sort of difficulties in his life. Um, he needs full-time care um, and he has um, very high, high support needs. Um, he's become the most amazing drummer for this band called The Autistics. Um, when he was 10, he really didn't like loud noises, sort of crowds and you know dogs barking and babies crying. Um, it had a really bad effect on him. His parents... Uh, were very supportive with him with, with when it came to sort of um dealing with that and one thing that was was amazing was actually music 
music was was actually one of the the keys for him uh he got a pair of drumsticks when he was 10 his, his one of his elder sister older sisters played drums and he sat at the drum drum kit and it became quite clear once he picked up the drumsticks that there was although he had a bit of difficulty holding them at first he had a really good sense of rhythm um and then over time it became very clear that he was a pretty good drummer and they formed this band called the autistics and cut a long story short you know few years later they're on stage in front of a thousand people performing uh, at a charity event and so tom jones is in the front row and they invite him up on stage no yeah they just they're just Did like he get up he got up on stage um and you know the the thing about saul is that he's got no um no uh, ego you know and there's no uh, the, this guy tom jones he's just a music mate he isn't sir tom jones and oh my god i'm gonna be playing on stage with him it's like great he's just come come you like music i like music let's play <laughs> and it was magical and and that tied into one of the themes of the film which is you know vince who is uh the representation of a bad side of the music industry where it was based on you know uh being a product and 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 uh the commodification of arts mm. versus what Saul represents and what Stevie represents which is what music really sh should always be which is about um you know uh pure enjoyment you know a human visceral need for 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 enjoyment uh through music anyway so 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 it's very important to, for for me that we cast uh, a neurodivergent actor or, or at least explored to a very thorough degree, mm. the neurodivergent talent that were around to play that role because they haven't been represented in the past and they've not been given the, that opportunity. So, uh, but the main thing was actually that um, the neurodivergent actor that would play that role would bring as much of themselves into, into it. You know, I obviously based the character originally on Saul, but he's not Saul, he, he's he's inspired by Saul. So what Leo did was he kind of took the character on, we, you know, we spoke and I spoke to his parents and we kind of molded that character into something that felt that he had so much ownership on, mm. of. And it ended up with him, you know, getting a, a, a Biffa nomination, which is, you know, which was genuinely like a life-changing moment for me personally. You mm. know? It's one of the, his performance is so charming. And I've told, I've already geeked out about it, but um, for anyone, just go and watch that and you'll know exactly which scene I'm talking <laughs> about. Um, talk to me about a time when you were wrong. I think I was first wrong when I started supporting Newcastle in 1996 <laughs> because we were amazing. And then I've spent the majority of my 26 years supporting them with us not being very good. However, this year we seem to be great. But anyway, that's... Were you supporting subject. Alan Shearer in 1996? Basically, yeah. Is that the yeah. problem? Well, well, <laughs> this could become a football podcast. If you want, I'm, I could dive into it. That's as far as I can that's go fine, with that. Fine. No, but genuinely, he joined the team and Newcastle, the way Newcastle played was very attacking. And actually, interestingly, it does kind of relate to just, you know, what we're talking about because the Newcastle team of that era were called the entertainers because they would just attack, attack, attack. And, you know, there's... they score more goals than the other team and the defense was not really known to be that great but like the attack was so exciting mm. so um that's why i started supporting them and also because half my family are from liverpool and half are from london and i couldn't choose between a london or a, uh, or a merseyside team um and i thought newcastle was in the middle no i'm kidding <laughs> um uh never geography is never my strong point um but but that kind of yeah that that mentality of just yeah the faith i guess it's like you know attack, 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 and mm -hmm. reach for what you want to get, you know. It didn't work that well for as a Newcastle fan for many years, um, but now we're looking good. Anyway, um, but no, I think um, 
I think not going full time sooner was something I got wrong. I think I put off the reality that that was something that needed to happen for a few more years than it needed to be. And, you know, my family and my wife were very, very supportive, but I think I should have kind of identified that sooner. Mm -hmm. um, I think I would have been further along. And uh, and also just kind of not not always trusting my gut instincts. I think, you know, when making the film, as I said, there were so many decisions a day that mm -hmm. I needed to make and so many places I needed to be that um, learning for next time, I think your gut instinct... You know, a lot of people kind of think uh, the gut instinct doesn't take into account the politics of certain decisions, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But actually, for me anyway, it certainly did. And that's why it was my gut instinct, because I was aware, you know, I, I kind of I overly thought through certain certain decisions that that I that every time I look back and this didn't happen very often. But when it did happen, I, I look back and I, I kind of think. No, 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 I should have gone with that first thought because even, even though it's like an initial, it's a quick thought and you don't think you've thought something through, mm. it is kind of there anyway when you have that gut response, if that makes sense. Because I think sometimes gut instinct can seem like you just know. Yeah. And it doesn't factor in the experience or all the things that you've observed. And that's why your gut's telling you that mm. because it's processed all of that information. It can't necessarily tell you in a clear, well thought out thought in your brain. It just tells you from there, just like. And Absolutely. It's, it's like jump or don't jump kind of feeling, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's what you that's what you get to learn. Okay. Yes. I was interested to know about your weaknesses. Because mm. I think, again, knowing when you're wrong, uh, having a really good sense of what you're not good at so that you can get better. You talked about time management and anxiety, but also something that I was actually surprised but delighted to see was you talked about how your weight changes mm. based on... But I, I'm guessing what's going on with the time management and anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've always, um, I've always been quite extreme with being very disciplined and and not having any discipline. It's really <laughs> weird. Um, and uh, I spend, you know, when I'm really really busy, like a lot of people, you know, you don't find time to go to the gym or, or keep yourself fit, and you 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 know i specifically i'll eat to get through things you know, comfort mm -hmm. comfort eating but it's really weird it's like when when i'm not busy well I, I, there's always busy but when i'm not in ex an extreme level of, of of busyness like on set shooting um i will go on this kind of like h hardcore diet be overly disciplined because mm -hmm. I, I guess for me dieting is so unpleasant that I want it to be over and done with as soon as possible so I go <laughs> as extreme as possible um but no it, it's it, it's not that crazy I I I I, I diet um and I just watch what I eat. I have a lot more water uh, and I'm I'm very disciplined and I can lose a lot of weight quite quickly but not in the I never maintain that it, it'll I'll always as soon as I'm I'm not active on the diet mm -hmm. and I'm not actively disciplined Every, I just always make the wrong decision and then I very quickly put a lot of weight back on and I yo-yo throughout the year based on how busy I am and I'm trying to change that. Um, I actually just bought a treadmill, uh, like a kind of, yeah, relatively small little fold away treadmill. Right. Let's see if I open the box. <laughs> it depends on how busy I, I am. I love the fact it's not even out of the box <laughs> yet. It's not, yeah. <laughs> just been, bought a treadmill, Emma. I say just bought, it's been six months. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so we'll see because I've kind of, you know, I... I I've taken away the the uh, the um, obstacle of like having to actively go to a gym, yeah. you know. Um, so that's kind of what I've done there, but we'll see. Um, 
yeah, I think in terms of time management, that is something that I've always, always struggled with um, ever since I was at school. And I tend to be the type of person that will procrastinate a lot. And then as soon as someone says, you know, basically threatens me with taking away what I want, I'll then rush and get it done. Part of that I like to tell myself is why the stuff I can create can be relative. You know, I'm quite happy with some of the mm -hmm. stuff I create, but I've never really seen whether I could do that earlier. And if I can do that earlier without having that stress, that will be quite life changing. I'm the same. Are you? If I have a deadline, then it will be the 48 hours prior to having to deliver when all of the work gets done. There will be an emotional input right at the very start. Then there'll be nothing. And then there will be... Right. And some listeners might be thinking, why are you delighted that Eddie's talked about struggling with his <laughs> yeah, weight? Hey. And, <laughs> and the reason I said that, and I want to clarify, is because I think it's difficult for anybody to be honest about that. Mm. I'm very honest about it, but it's not. So, I know that it's conversations I have with people who wouldn't want to go on tape. But secondly, it's because it's not often you hear a guy say something like that. Right. Mm. So I'm really glad to sort of bring it out into the light, if you will. And also, I think with the weight thing, I'm definitely someone where you can tell where my mental health is based on what's happening with how I'm eating, mm. how I'm exercising. So it's really interesting for me to hear that that's a similar thing for you. Yeah. No, that is that is interesting. We're alike. <laughs> we are alike. <laughs> but yeah, but it's it's the kind of thing that goes on very silently and mm. quietly in the back of one's head. And it is almost like this internal saboteur. It's a very private relationship that we have with our brain and our bodies. And I'm speaking more to people, understanding that actually I think we all have this sort of dialogue that's going on. Mm. There are very few people who don't have to think about mm. it mm, mm. or for whom it doesn't occupy some sort of brain space. So mm. I'm just thank thanking you for um, being honest about oh, you're your welcome. experience. If you it. have the answers, please send them on a <laughs> postcard. Well, I might fill you in about something after this. Right, <laughs> so we're going to close off with what makes you hopeful because in talking about the difficult stuff, it's important to really reference the fact that all of these difficult things have led to good. Yeah. Because we're talking about them having been through them. So with all of this experience under your belt, what is it that makes you hopeful for the future? Um, I think the main thing for me is two things, really. What One thing is I hope that the industry, I hope our film goes a little way, you know, um, in in making people that want to finance films or the decision makers on who to cast and who to crew um where they look at neurodivergent talent uh in a different way to how they looked in the past mm -hmm. um and they give opportunities to to people because we've proven you know with with leo and some of the crew as well um but also the 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 cast in uh mainly in the drum circle scenes mm. um that you have to give neurodivergent talent um, opportunities, especially when it's their stories. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what that's one thing I'm hopeful for. Um, the other thing is um, the nature. Uh, we've touched on it, but the nature of 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 the industry and being on set and making people feel valued and this the, going away from this kind of old, like weirdly romanticized thing about like treating people like shit you know and like even some of my f favorite filmmakers you know of the past i won't name names um 
in those kind of in you know eras of the you know the 60s and the 70s and the 80s there's like legendary stories about how horrible they are mm-hmm. do you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it's like i i i hope that that you know in order to get the the incredible performance or the incredible shot and they did this amount of horrible stuff to their crew and their cast to get it and it isn't look how amazing it is and it's like can we just like move away from that mm-hmm. i'm ho- i'm hopeful that we can um and I think, and I think we are as well. I think in this day and age, it's just not. There's certain things now that um, there's certain lines that that um, are now red lines, mm-hmm. which I think are uh, a positive thing. So I'm hopeful about that as well. Eddie, I've loved this conversation, and for many reasons. But I think because we've sw- we've talked very specifically about making a film, but I think anyone listening to this can apply a lot of what you've said to an office that they work in mm-hmm. or any kind of experience that they may be having. And I'm I'm going to quote uh, Robert Downey Jr. Because in knowing you and also uh, reading up on how the film was made and looking at other things that you've said, something, <laughs> an Avengers reference came to mind. Excellent. Which is yeah. <laughs> um, faster alone, further together. Mm-hmm. And what really jumped out at me about the making this film is how it's this passionate idea that you had but it wasn't until you collaborated and trusted other people and championed them that things moved and and gained momentum. And I think that's a a good lesson for all of us. Thank you very much. I I totally disagree with everything you just said. No, I'm kidding. I'm (laughs) kidding. No, no, I I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, And um, yeah, I I believe it. I'm still learning, you know. I'll come back next time and... uh, Totally uh, just disavow everything I've said. But Bring your Oscar yeah. next time. I'll bring the Oscar. Oh, God. <laughs> now he said it. Yeah. After, the, after I met you, I remember um, setting to Charlotte and just saying, "He, you know he's going to do it, don't you? Oh, that's very kind. That's very kind. Why weren't you saying that to me when I really needed you to say that to me in the horrible time? No, I didn't okay. know. I okay. didn't know. Yeah. At that point, you weren't sure. No, no. <laughs> um, thank you. I was I've, on the fence. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, listeners, please go and watch I Used to Be Famous, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show. And why not tell a friend about the podcast? If you want to watch what happens behind the scenes, then head over to my Instagram or I'm at Emma Guns. And if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks, obstacles, challenges or curveballs that you've faced and overcome, then tell me on thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. And it may feature in one of the midweek shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you on the next one. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 